Let us turn once more to Esther chapter 1. We'll read the whole chapter, and the text is verses 10 through 22, the second portion of the chapter. Now it came to pass in the days of Ahasuerus, this is Ahasuerus which reigned from India over an hundred and seven and twenty provinces, that in those days when the king Ahasuerus sat on the throne of his kingdom, which was in Shushan the palace, in the third year of his reign he made a feast unto all his princes and his servants, the power of Persia and Media the nobles and princes of the provinces being before him. When he showed the riches of his glorious kingdom and the honor of his excellent majesty, many days, even an hundred and fourscore days. And when these days were expired, the king made a feast unto all the people that were present in Shushan the palace, both unto great and small, seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace, where were white, green, and blue hangings, fastened with cords of fine linen and purple, to silver rings and pillars of marble. The beds were of gold and silver upon a pavement of red and blue and white and black marble. And they gave them drink in vessels of gold, the vessels being diverse one from another, and royal wine in abundance, according to the state of the king. And the drinking was according to the law, none did compel. For so the king had appointed to all the officers of his house, that they should do according to every man's pleasure. Also Vashti the queen made a feast for the women in the royal house which belonged to King Ahasuerus. Now begins our text. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, and Abagtha, Zethar, and Carcass, the seven chamberlains that served in the presence of Ahasuerus the king, to bring Vashti the queen before the king with the crown royal, to show the people and the princes her beauty, for she was fair to look on. But the queen Vashti refused to come at the king's commandment by his chamberlains. Therefore was the king very wroth, and his anger burned in him. Then the king said to the wise men, which knew the times, for so was the king's manner toward all that knew law and judgment. And the next unto him was Karshima, Shethar, Admetha, Tarshish, Miris, Marcina and Memukan, the seven princes of Persia and Media, which saw the king's face and which sat the first in the kingdom. What shall we do unto the queen Vashti according to the law? Because she hath not performed the commandment of the king Ahasuerus by the chamberlains. And Memukan answered before the king and the princes, Vashti the queen hath not done wrong to the king only, but also to all the princes and to all the people that are in all the provinces of the king Ahasuerus. For this deed of the queen shall come abroad unto all women, 
so that they shall despise their husbands in their eyes. When it shall be reported, the king Ahasuerus commanded Vashti the queen to be brought in before him, but she came not. Likewise shall the ladies of Persia and Media say this day unto all the king's princes, which have heard of the deed of the queen. Thus shall there arise too much contempt and wrath. If it please the king, let there go a royal commandment from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, that it be not altered, that Vashti come no more before King Ahasuerus, and let the king give her royal estate unto another that is better than she. And when the king, and when the king's decree which he shall make shall be published throughout all his empire, for it is great, all the wives shall give to their husbands honor, both to great and small. And the saying pleased the king and the princes. And the king did according to the word of Memucan. For he sent letters into all the king's provinces, into every province according to the writing thereof, and to every people after their language, that every man should bear rule in his own house, and that it should be published according to the language of every people. Thus far we read the Holy Scriptures. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, as we have begun our study of the book of Esther, the opening verses of the chapter have immersed us into the setting in which the events of this book play out. The opening verses have brought us to the corrupt heart of the world power in the days of the return of the exiles to Judah. And in the last text which we considered, verses 1 through 9, we took a look at the man who sits upon the throne of the world, so it seemed, this Ahasuerus. We noticed his character as a carnal man swollen with his own pride, a man infatuated with his own greatness, who projected his power by throwing two Festive banquets, the first lasting 180 days in which he required all of the princes of Persia and Media to attend that he might show to them the grandeur of his excellent majesty and also show them that he was the mighty king who must be obeyed. Following that, there was a shorter feast of seven days for the citizens of the city of Shushan. Now we come to our text, which records surprising events that took place on the last day of the second feast. Nestor 1, verses 10 through 22, sets before us the first great reversal that takes place in the book of Esther. There are many reversals that we will see, and this is the first of the great reversals. The king who had spent so long in a grandiose display of his excellent majesty, is now exposed before the eyes of all to be the powerless fool that he actually is. And we'll see more of this wicked man, and there will be applications by way of negative example that we can draw from that. We will see what a reversal it is. And we'll see God's hand behind it. The unnamed and unseen king continues to work 
And in that we will see the gospel import of this last part of Esther 1. So let's turn to this text and let's look at the first big reversal in the book of Esther. Under the theme, peeling back the mask of the mighty. We're going to look first at an act of unmasking defiance. Secondly, a foolish decree in response. And then lastly, an unseen hand at work. The text sets before us an act of unmasking defiance. That is, a defiant act towards the mighty king that peels back the mask of his power and lets us see what's behind it. The text takes us back to the paradise garden in Shushan, back under the marble pillared pavilion decked with banners of white, green, and blue, back to the golden couches and the golden drinking vessels to the lavish feast of Ahasuerus and his guests. It's the seventh day of the second feast, the last day. Ahasuerus has his court gathered. He has the male citizens of his capital there in his garden enjoying His bottomless wine. It's the last day of his grandiose display. Verse 9 notes that Vashti the queen was not with him. In fact, Vashti the queen was hosting a separate banquet indoors for the women of the court and the capital. This was not an uncommon practice. In fact, it was the practice of the Persians to have gender segregation at feasts such as this, especially where uncouth behavior was a distinct possibility. And given the fact that the king had said that every man was to drink according to his own pleasure, such uncouth behavior was expected. And so the women were hidden away in the palace, having their feast while the men partook of the bottomless wine of King Ahasuerus. It is now the seventh day of the feast, and the scene is ripe for the king to give one last demonstration of his wealth and of his power and of his excellent majesty. And that's what he does. His drunken mind, for he had much wine, the text tells us, that he was merry with wine, and that's not the good kind of merry like you read in Psalm 104, but he was intoxicated. And his drunken mind comes up with something that will put the finishing touch on his grandiose display. He has a dazzling display piece. As he thinks of her, hidden away till now in the palace. Queen Vashti. Everyone knew she was beautiful, that's what her name means. Vashti comes from the old Persian word, beautiful. And verse 11 tells us, she was fair to look on. And that's all Ahasuerus cared about. That was the kind of man he was. She had the one quality that he valued, beauty. Ahasuerus had more than one wife. We know from history that his main queen was named a mistress, and she was the mother of Artaxerxes, his heir, under whom Nehemiah would serve as cupbearer. But it was common practice for despotic kings such as Ahasuerus to have many wives and concubines, and it seems that Vashti was one of his favorites because of that one quality that he valued above all. 
And so his drunken mind comes up with this idea, I will show off my queen to my court and to the citizens of my city. And so he gives the order in verses 10 and 11. On a whim, he dispatches seven of his chamberlains, that is, his personal attendants, to go and fetch Queen Vashti, that she may be brought before the king, wearing the crown royal, as the text says. Notice, it's still a big show. Seven personal attendants to go fetch the queen. Ahasuerus is still putting on a display. Wearing the crown royal. That's what he wanted them to see along with her beauty. He wanted to display her but also to show forth his power. Look, I have everything. I even have the most beautiful woman in the realm. That she was to come with the crown royal implied that she was to come with all of the royal finery that her position of queen gave her. But it's all self-serving. This wicked man is going to put the finishing touch on his display. And that's the circumstance that sets up the great reversal that is now going to unfold in the text. Because as the text reports, something unthinkable happens that is unthinkable to the mind of Ahasuerus. Someone says no to him. The queen Vashti defies his command, verse 12 says. But the queen Vashti refused to come at the king's commandment by his chamberlains. She won't come. She says no, she refuses. She defies a royal order from the king. The text doesn't tell us her reasons, but the text doesn't need to tell us. The command of a drunken king was as offensive and degrading as it was ridiculous. And Vashti, she's the queen. She is not to be paraded before a gawking crowd of courtesans and commoners. She says, no, I will not come. She stuck to her guns on this. Seven chamberlains have to come back to Ahasuerus without Vashti the queen. And Ahasuerus does not take kindly to it, as the rest of verse 12 says. Therefore was the king very wroth, and his anger burned in him. He wasn't just annoyed, he was furious. His anger was like a fire that burned in him. That's what happens when someone says no to this man. I am Ahasuerus the king, I get my way. How dare my queen say no to me. He was infuriated. By this act of defiance. And in his rage. He would see to it that she is punished. He would get rid of her. As the rest of the text. Describes. Before we move on in the history. And look at how this act of defiance. Unmasked King Ahasuerus. We do well to pause and make a few applications that we can glean from this scene in the Persian court. First of all, let's remember that the characters in the book of Esther are not intended to be moral examples for our imitation. And that applies here too. Commentators go back and forth about who's in the right, who is righteous and who is unrighteous here in this dispute between Ahasuerus and Vashti. But that's beside the point. 
Both Ahasuerus and Vashti are unbelievers. They are pagans. That means they don't do anything out of a true faith. They don't do anything according to the law of God or to the glory of God. Even their virtues, if Ahasuerus had any, are nothing but glittering vices. A pious motive is not to be found on the part of either party. Both are self-interested. Both have their pride. Neither is seeking God's glory. And yet, nonetheless, we have a certain human sympathy for Vashti, do we not? Because of the horrible way that she is treated by Ahasuerus. And though, as an unbeliever, what she did was done in sin and in pride, we can understand her reasons for refusing this indecent, drunken command of the king. And so we can glean something here from the negative examples that we have. Particularly in Ahasuerus' treatment of Vashti. The Bible isn't just showing us a temperamental king behaving the way kings behaved in those days. What we have here really is a clear depiction of the kind of mistreatment that we call abuse today. That's what Ahasuerus is guilty of. He was an abusive man who here abuses his wife. And you look at the way he treats her and the pattern of his behavior and it fits. Abuse, whether it's spousal abuse, whether it's sexual abuse, abuse always involves oppressive power. Using power to threaten and to coerce another person in order to control them and to use them to gratify one's own pleasure and desire. It is the perverse opposite of love. True love gives of self for the good of the other. We see that love perfectly demonstrated in Jesus Christ. But abusive behavior is the complete opposite. It treats another person as an object to be used For the gratification of one's own desires. And that's what Ahasuerus does with Vashti here. Yes, he could be benevolent. Yes, he could be charming. Look at him as the king throws this wonderful banquet for all of his citizens. We saw last week that that was a mask. Behind it is the subtle projection of power. I give you this. You do what I tell you. If I favor you. Question me, stand against me, you're in for it. Ahasuerus used power and authority to dominate and to degrade and to expose his wife to shame. He was a man swollen with his pride in his own greatness. He reveals here no respect for his wife's person. He sees her as an object to use as he pleases. He demands absolute obedience to his every whim. Here at the feast, his law was, let every man do according to his pleasure. But he changes that law. Not the case for Vashti. As soon as I want you to come, you come. Vashti had everything the world had to offer. He had put the crown upon her head. But that too was a means of control. I can just as quickly take it away. Her fate 
hung on the fickle favor of this wicked man. And really when we look at what he does to her, having her come forth to be displayed before the gawking eyes of drunk men, what we really have here is a case of sexual abuse of Vashti. So this shows us that the Bible is not silent on these things, these evils that we hear a lot about today. The Bible is not silent. The Bible addresses it for what it is and instructs us about it. In Ahasuerus, we see what abuse looks like. We see what an evil it is. And we are warned against it. This is an evil that, according to Ephesians 5 verse 3, along with all forms of oppression and sexual immorality, ought not once to be named among you as becometh saints, but to our grief it is an evil that is named in the church of Christ. It is named in our midst. And that is a grief to us. And we pray for God's grace that we may grow in our understanding of how to handle it and how to prevent it. For it is brought untold to many. Let us see the evil for what it is. Let us see Ahasuerus and how he behaves, that we may be on the lookout for such behavior, such patterns in our families, in our church, in our denomination, that we might devote ourselves to rooting out and preventing this grievous evil. And may we as Christians and as churches dedicate ourselves to growing an understanding of what it is and how to show compassion and to truly help those who have been wounded by abuse such as we see in Ahasuerus. And may the hurt, those who have been wounded by abuse, remember the words of Psalm 9 verse 9. The Lord also will be a refuge for the oppressed. A refuge in time of trouble. We see in Ahasuerus something we can learn from to guard ourselves and our churches against this evil. Flowing out of that, there's an application for all of us concerning the use of authority and power. A word of application that comes to all of us that God and His Wisdom places in a certain position of authority, whether it be a husband and father in the home, whether it be parents over children, whether it be teachers in the school, office bearers in the church. How power is to be used and authority exercised is not to be like Ahasuerus. Ahasuerus is before us now as the example of what satanic power looks like. A man who is swollen with his own pride, addicted to power, who sees other people merely as objects to be used for his own ends. Let it not be that authority and power in our homes, in our churches, in our relationships is used in that way. Not to dominate or to control or to exploit. But rather, Jesus shows us how power and authority is to be used by those to whom he gives it. He modeled that for us, himself being Lord of all, and yet servant of all. Whose power he used to bless, and to save, to protect. 
Husbands, let us use our authority in the home in that way. To love, to serve, to protect teachers and office bearers, to the students and to the flock to whom we minister. Use power for good, authority for good. That's Christ. That's Christ and his bride. Christ is not an Ahasuerus. And he does not conduct himself as an Ahasuerus to his bride, the church. He never abuses her. He never degrades her. He never exploits her for his own pleasure. But Christ gives his life for her. He is tender. His strong love is protection to her. Nurturing to her. And he uses his authority, which is real, to guide her and to protect her. And to bring her into his fellowship. In Christ we see how power and authority is to be used. One more application, one especially to be tailored to the daughters of the congregation and the young women of the congregation who are dating, who are looking to date, who are looking ahead toward marriage. Be wise. Have your eyes open. Beware of men like Ahasuerus. There are many. They may seem charming, strong, attractive. They may even be found within the church. They may say all kinds of nice things, get you all kinds of nice things. But how does he treat you? Don't ignore warning signs. Does he treat you with dignity? Does he respect your person, your boundaries? Does he show himself to be a man who cares for you as Christ cares for the church? Or do you see him trying to exert control over your life? Does he demean you? Don't ignore those signs. In dating, in looking for a husband, look past the outward. Look past even the kind words to the heart behind them. And what do you look for? You look for Christ. Do you see Christ in him? If you see Christ in him, that's what you want to see. Christ and Christ-like love. Is he a man who will lead you to Christ? Is he a man who is Christ-like in the way he treats you? In dating, look for Christ. The one you date. And while that application is especially for the young women here too, it applies for the young men as well. Look for Christ. Young men, any young woman you date or seek to marry, show her the dignity and respect befitting a daughter of the king. Don't be an Ahasuerus. Be Christ-like. That's how you lead. That's how you exercise headship in marriage. Christ-likeness. Not Ahasuerus likeness. From those applications, we come back to Vashti's defiance, and now we see how it is an unmasking act of defiance. Her refusal to come at the king's command peeled back the mask of mighty King Ahasuerus and gave everyone a glimpse of what was really behind it. And when you look behind the mask of 
almighty king, you see he's really quite different than what he projects himself to be. He's a man who is rather foolish and rather powerless. Vashti's refusal creates a scene of the greatest irony. Think about it. This is the closing act of Ahasuerus's half-year display of his excellent majesty. And the whole point of the feast was for him to flaunt and to flex before his people. The point was to project himself as a king with absolute and unchallengeable power to dazzle and frighten his people into absolute submission to him and to garner the praise of men. And Vashti says, no, to him. And peels back the mask and exposes Ahasuerus as powerless in his own palace. He cannot even bend his own queen to his will. This is the man who rules from Ethiopia to India. This is the man who rules over 127 provinces. And yet his queen says no. And there's nothing he can do to compel her. And there's the irony. The final act of his grandiose display becomes a public display of how fragile and hollow his power actually is. He's not in control. And that's why he gets so mad. This abusive king is furious because his power is questioned and he's exposed for what he really is. And he acts out in that anger. But is it not ironic how that little act of defiance rips the mask right off the mighty king. And we can see him for who he is. And everyone in Shushan can see him for who he is. As we've seen, the book of Esther is sprinkled with satire. And here it comes out. We can't help but be amused by this irony. Even laugh at how these events play out. And we can appreciate that. God inspired the book of Esther this way. There's not much satire or humor in the Bible. But there is here. And that shows us that there's a place for it. This man. This man. Look at him behind his mask. This man sits on the throne. See him for what he is. See every earthly power for what it is. Something ultimately to be laughed at. That does not mean we make light of evil. That is not to deny the reality that we are called to respect the powers that be that God has put over us. But it is to make the point that the powers of this world, while they project themselves as invincible, while they put on a mask, they're actually powerless before the God to whom all power belongs. What we see here is the power of a Ahasuerus being punctured. And what this does is it punctures the image of greatness, the image of invincibility that every kingdom of this world puts on. It punctures the image of invincibility that the kingdom of Satan puts on. And we can see these powers for what they are. And we can laugh confidently. Because we have the victory in Jesus Christ. God himself laughs 
when, when the powers of this world take counsel against him and his Christ. Psalm 2 verse 4. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. And that's part of not falling into despair when the days are really dark and evil seems ascendant. We can see behind the mask. And we can laugh at what we see behind that mask. Because behind the mask is a defeated foe whose power is not what it is projected to be. And so the satire of the book makes us laugh, but it also calls us to be wise as serpents, to be sober. This man rules. That's also sobering. This man rules. He sits on the throne of the vastest empire. And often that is the case in this world. That fools like Ahasuerus, wicked abusive men like Ahasuerus sit in the positions of power in the world. And so we must not be complacent, too comfortable in this world, but be vigilant, watching in prayer, looking unto and trusting the unseen king who rules over all. Ahasuerus is angry. Something must be done and quick. His tender ego has been greatly offended. And Vashti must pay. And so here, as the text continues, we see what wicked men do. Ahasuerus sends out a foolish decree in response. Foolish decree is issued in response. And that foolish decree has two parts. And it's come up with, through consultation with the king's advisors. First part concerns what to be done with Vashti, and the second part concerns how to avoid fallout from Vashti's actions. Ahasuerus gathers seven of his premier wise men to tackle the problem of his upstart queen. Verses 13 and 14 Tell us that. Then the king said to the wise men, which knew the times, for so was the king's manner toward all of them that knew law and judgment. And then verse 14 gives us their names. Seven wise men. And you see see the overkill here as well. Seven chamberlains sent to fetch Queen Vashti. Vashti says no. And so now Ahasuerus has to resort to his seven premier wise men to figure out what to do about the situation. The mask is further peeled back. This is the all-powerful king. And yet he doesn't know what to do about this. He has to get his wise men together to tackle the Vashti problem. Seven advisors. They're allegedly wise. They know the times. They're informed in matters of law and judgment. That is at least who these men were supposed to be. And here it's almost comical as well. Ahasuerus takes this dispute with his wife and brings it to his bureaucrats. He raises it to a matter of state concern and gets the input of his government on how to solve this problem. Things are unraveling on this last day of Ahasuerus' grandiose display. So Ahasuerus asks them now in verse 15, What shall we do unto Queen Vashti according to the law? Because she has not performed the commandment of the king Ahasuerus by the chamberlains. That's the capital offense. She has not done what I want. What do we do with her? You can hear the rage in his voice. 
dare she defy me? An example must be made of her. Ahasuerus doesn't care one whit about her. To to him, she's disposable. He'll find someone else. Something must be done. But it must be according to law, verse 15 says. Not because there's an existing law to be upheld, but because what is done has to look legal. It's got to fit with the laws of the Medes and the Persians. After all, the the Medes and the Persians prided themselves in being people of rule of law. It's as if he's saying to his wise men, find me some legal way to punish her. Well, it doesn't take long for the seven to come up with an answer to the king's request. And their spokesman, Memukan, gives a lengthy piece of advice that we won't read. It's verses 16 through 20. But in this advice, Memukan addresses two concerns. And interestingly, his first concern is not Vashti, but what he sees as the potential fallout of Vashti's actions. It boils down to this. Your majesty, we have an empire-wide problem. What Vashti did was not just an offense against you, but it was an offense against us. And it was an offense against every husband in Persia in media. We risk a domestic uprising. When word gets out what the queen did, all of the ladies of Persia are going to follow her example. They will despise their husbands and defy our authority too. You can almost hear the the hysterics creeping into this man's voice. All wives everywhere will rise up this day. We have to do something. And so Memukan urges Ahasuerus to issue a decree to stop this likely breakdown of domestic law and order. And that's verses 19 through 20. If it please the king, let there go a royal commandment. Let it be written among the laws of the Medes and the Persians, which were known to be unalterable. And this decree is to have two parts. First, Vashti is to be deposed and divorced. That will satisfy the anger of wicked King Ahasuerus. He will add yet more sin to his previous sins. For defying his command, he will get rid of Vashti. Verse 19 says that Vashti will come no more before King Ahasuerus. And you could probably see the smug smirk of satisfaction on Ahasuerus' face as he hears that advice. How fitting. She wouldn't come when I told her to come. Let her never come again. This is the law and order in Persia. It's frightening. A people that prided themselves in law and order, and yet behind that law and order is the whim of this tyrant. There is not justice to be found in Persia. And briefly, an application there. There will not be justice in this world. The same is true in this world. Behind the powers, every earthly power here below, there's a man serving self. Because that's all fallen man can do, is serve self. And therefore, our hope is not in any earthly power or in any institution of man or in any political cause or any of the things that captivate the attention and the energy and the resources of the people of our culture. Our hope and our salvation is found in none of those things. 
The world talks about justice, but justice is simply the word that it uses to describe its own personal agenda. Justice is found only in the righteous God, the judge, who in his good timing will right all wrongs. And it is his law that is just and right. It's his law we are to follow and live by. His law which is not motivated by a tyrannical whim. But his law which is motivated by his own holiness and perfection. How different is God? And what comfort that gives us in this world which is so full of evil. And so full of injustice that seems to go without redress. The God who sees all. And the Christ who is swiftly coming. Will right every wrong. He will establish justice. He whose name is wonderful, counselor, mighty God, the prince of peace. The increase of whose government shall be without end. Who will establish it with righteousness and judgment. Our hope is in that king. No earthly king. Vashti will be deposed and divorced unlawfully. And secondly, the wise men's greater concern is the danger that their own wives and the wives of Media and Persia may follow Vashti's example. And so Memucan says, Decree, O king, make it an unalterable law of the Medes and Persians that every man shall rule in his house and that the wives of your vast realm show honor to their husbands. These wise men are cut from the same cloth as their king, aren't they? Their first concern is not the king or his honor. They don't care one whit about Vashti. They're looking after and out for their own skin. Their advice is not shrewd legal counsel. They feel threatened by Vashti's act of defiance. They're motivated by self-interest too. Though Memukan's suggestion that Vashti's defiance will lead to civil unrest throughout the empire is quite overstated. What it does reveal is something about Memukan and the other Persian officials. Their masks are peeled back here. Persia's whole power structure is being shaken by this defiance of Queen Vashti. It's exposing them all for what they are. Wicked, power-hungry, selfish men who project themselves as in control when they're really not. Who demand obedience. Who demand to be honored. But they are not honorable. And so here they try to maintain their honor and their power by a sheer force of law, issuing an edict, compelling submission and respect. These are allegedly the wise men of the land. And yet ironically and somewhat humorously, the text shows us behind their masks, they're fools just like their king. Well, Ahasuerus was very pleased with this advice. It very much fits with his character and desires. And so as verses 21 and 22 tell us, Ahasuerus issues the decree according to the word of the wise man, Memukan. And the vast machinery of the Persian Empire gets moving. An army of scribes and translators gets to work. Writing letters containing this edict so that it can be distributed and dispatched by riders throughout the empire from Ethiopia to India. Where all kinds of people of different ethnicities lived and spoke different languages. So important is this message, it must get to them all. 
everyone must hear the edict that Vashti is not queen anymore because she defied the king and all wives are to honor their husbands. And Ahasuerus rules over all. That message needs to get across to everybody. Perhaps you feel tempted to laugh again. And not without reason. Because Ahasuerus' decree in response to Vashti's disobedience is a foolish decree. In fact, it's so foolish that it accomplishes the very opposite thing than what it's intended to accomplish. The concern of Memucan and the other advisors was that when word gets out what Vashti did, we are going to have trouble on our hands. There will be contempt and wrath. What does this edict do? It publishes to the Persian world what just happened in the court. Ahasuerus' decree deposing Vashti and codifying wifely submission into Persian law aimed to put his mask back on and to flex and to say, I'm in control, no one defies me, but it actually peels the mask back even farther. Now every man, woman, and child in the Persian Empire is going to know Vashti said no to the king. And though he raged and got rid of her, he couldn't bend her to his will. Maybe he's not as absolutely mighty as he makes himself out to be. Moreover, the decree shows the limits of Ahasuerus' power. How in the world do you enforce a decree like this? Imagine yourself a common Persian living in the the frontier of the empire, and you hear this letter read. Oh, okay. And you go on with life. It's silly. A foolish decree that fails its purpose of buttressing the power and honor of Ahasuerus. In fact, it shows his weakness and his foolishness. And here we see one of the themes of Esther coming through. The theme of reversal. And God's behind it. Evil collapses in upon itself. Evil destroys itself with its own schemes. By evil are the evil slain. And though Ahasuerus isn't slain here, by the design of God, his ego takes a beating. Does not God say, they who are proud and who exalt themselves shall be abased? There's God's justice here. Ahasuerus has spent half a year exalting himself, displaying his grandiose majesty, projecting his power, abusing those under him. And now on the last day of his display, God brings him low and turns everything around so that he becomes a fool on stage for the world to laugh at. That's God's justice. And you see that throughout covenant history. How God abases the proud. How God turns the schemes of the wicked upon their own heads. And that's a comfort to the church. What God does with Ahasuerus, God does with all of the others who are like Ahasuerus. And Ahasuerus, he's a picture of Antichrist, remember. This is what God will do with Antichrist and the Antichristian kingdom and the vicious persecutors of the church as they exalt themselves. They shall quickly be abased. 
at the height of their glory, when they are most swollen with pride, they will fall and God will bring them low. The cross is the ultimate example, is it not? Satan persecuted Christ, driving him to the cross. He entered the heart of Judas to get Jesus betrayed. He was at work in the Sanhedrin and in the trial before Pontius Pilate. And when it seems as though he had succeeded in destroying the Christ, the seed of the woman, his head was crushed. For the cross that looked to be his victory was actually his defeat. And the first being to lift himself up in pride was decisively defeated and abased on Calvary's hill. God sees to it that justice is done. And so, behind this courtly scene, Behind the actions of a wicked king. Behind the defiance of Queen Vashti. Behind the foolish decree of Memukan and his advisors and the king. There's a real power at work. The unseen hand of the unseen king even amidst this mess that the text has just set before us. God was at work. His mighty arm was outstretched, working for the deliverance of his people. And even as the mask is peeled back from the earthly powers, exposing their weakness, exposing their wickedness, we see the strength and the real power of the unseen king. Who is working for the good of his people. Even here. The unseen hand of God governed and controlled the events of our text. And that's what we want to see. Controlled. Governed. Ahasuerus' drunken command. It was of the Lord. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. As rivers of water, he turneth it whithersoever he will. And he did that even with Ahasuerus' drunken heart. And so too, Queen Vashti, when she received that commandment from the chamberlains of the king, and she said no, and she refused to come, the queen's heart was in the hand of the Lord, and he bent it whithersoever he willed. The advice of Memukan and the others was of the Lord. As Proverbs 16 verse 1 says, the preparations of the heart of man and the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. The unseen hand of the unseen king was at work here. And behind all of this mess caused by this abusive king and his foolish decree, God is loving and protecting church and working out his counsel for the redemption of his church. Through the defiance and deposition of Queen Vashti, the unseen king is working to open the way for another to take her royal estate. One 
who Memukan said is better than Vashti, and for King Ahasuerus that just means beautiful because that's all he cared about. But one that God would be pleased to use for a wonderful purpose. God's working to prepare the way for Esther to take the royal crown. You can think about it this way. It's the unseen king's preemptive strike against the kingdom of darkness. God, as it were, is preparing a place for his agent, the one he will use for his purposes. He's preparing a place for her so that she may be brought into place before the devil's agent gets in place, Haman. So that by the time Haman is in the position of power, the one that God will use to thwart him is already there. And God is doing this with his eyes on Zerubbabel and Jeshua and the others back building the temple and the city of Jerusalem. His eyes upon Ezra and Nehemiah to come and others of his people who were still in Persia and Babylon at that time. His eye was upon the coming Christ and all who he ordained should belong to that coming Christ. The church of ages to come, his eye was on you. And me, as he guided everything that happened in this text to prepare for Esther's rise, that he might use her to thwart Satan's plot to destroy the church and stop the coming of Christ. We see again God's absolute sovereignty and his absolute sovereignty even over evil. Everything in our text is wickedness perpetrated by wicked men and yet the unseen hand of the unseen king is there. His hand is in it all, but his hand is clean of it all. In his most excellent and just manner, he works these things for the salvation of his church. For you and me, beloved. The happenings of Ahasuerus' court were subservient to your salvation and mine. The happenings of every royal court, every place of power, even in the most wicked places, are made subservient to your salvation and mine. So let this text Direct the eyes of our faith to that hand of the unseen king that is always working for your salvation and mine. Don't conclude that because you don't see it or you don't understand the way his hand is working, that his hand is not there or that his hand is not working. It is. If you were to look upon this scene as we just have, it wouldn't make sense. Where's God? But he was there. And now we, from our position in covenant history, have the benefit of seeing what he was doing in the court of Persia. And oh, how we are to praise him for who he is, what he has done for us as our king. Let us worship and bow down before our Lord, the unseen king who preserves his people. Amen. Faithful God, Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for this history. 
powerful history that exposes to us the true nature of the powers of this world and peels back their masks so that we may see them for what they are, that we not tremble or fear or be dismayed before them, but that we may even laugh confidently in the victory that we have in Christ. Grant also that the instruction gathered from the negative examples of this text may be impressed upon us so that we whom thou hast placed in positions of authority and power, may exercise it aright in true Christian love, and that we in our marriages and in our home and in our churches may serve and love one another as Christ loved us. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.